so as I was saying, uh, we're going to do a two-week series on how we know the Bible is true and reliable. Uh, so before Easter, we looked at evidences for the resurrection of Christ, which is uh, one of my favorite subjects to talk about when, we, when we're talking about the Christian faith. Because Christianity ultimately rests on that historical question. Was Christ raised from the dead? If he was, it's true. If he wasn't, then it's not. And there's no point in being a Christian. Because being a Christian is not uh, merely a spiritual experience that we have inwardly. Something has been done for us in time and place uh, and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. His life, death, and resurrection. That's what it is. It's an event that we believe in. And by, through believing in that, we have salvation and eternal life. Uh, the forgiveness of sins and the promise of the resurrection. Now, the question sometimes comes up as we're going through uh, the evidences of the resurrection. You know, those, those five E's. Uh, the, the empty tomb. The, the eyewitnesses. The enduring transformation of the apostles and so on. That's all great, but what if I don't believe that the Bible is true? Or what if the person I'm speaking with doesn't hold to the authority of the Bible? And that's a legitimate question. And so, uh, just as I gave you the the template of the five E's, so it's easy to remember, right? Uh, Even if you only get through the first three, that you've, you've really got on maybe first, second base now in your discussion with somebody, And remember, keep it in question format, as we talked about before. Uh, There's another template that I use to discuss how we know the Bible is true and reliable. And uh, this one, I use... trying to find a black pen here. Rather than... There we go. See black a little better. Oh, maybe not. Maybe we'll do blue. Uh, This one, I like to use the acrostic cafe. So you're speaking with somebody, and uh, they make a a claim. Um, You know, well, I don't really believe the Bible is true, or... How can we even rely on the Bible? One that I often hear from folks is, how how can we trust the Bible, our modern Bibles, since there are so many translations? I don't know if you've ever heard that before. Now, that's not a very well-thought-out statement. Um, And we need to kindly ask, well, what do you mean? How did you come to that conclusion? Remember, those are the... Very important questions to ask. What do you mean by that? How did you come to that conclusion? Always ask, ask questions. Never make a statement when a question can do. Because by asking a question, you're allowing that person to state what they really believe. You're providing yourself with a little more time to think. And you won't uh, uh, characterize or you know, uh, misrepresent their position if you get them to speak. Um, when they ask, when they say, "Well, you know, there's so many different translations," um, oftentimes they people don't know. They they're not very familiar with the Bible. Um, I mean, I've talked to very educated people 
who have said things like this to me, well, which one do you believe, the Old Testament or the New Testament? Now, I know we laugh, okay, but you're talking about biblical illiteracy. And, uh, or they've heard, well, I've heard, you know, that there's, an, there's a new international version, and then, well, do you believe that one, or do you believe the King James version? And so what they don't realize is that there are manuscripts that have been translated in different periods of time, but the manuscripts are reliable. And we'll get to that next week. The manuscripts are very important. Uh, so this is the kind of level of biblical literacy we are usually encountering in our modern world. Uh, people don't know the Bible today and don't know how we got it. Uh, so we can talk about a lot of things. You know, we can talk about canonicity. How do we know which books got into the Bible? We can talk about inspiration. How do we know that this is actually breathed out by the Spirit? Uh, what I like to do is try to help somebody see the coherency of the Scriptures in a conversation where they may not have have, have much contact with the Bible. Uh, and I use, I use this acrostic. Again, it doesn't say everything. There's so much that we can talk about, but this... This is a start. This is a start. So, CAFE, what does it stand for? Uh, the first thing is, stands for Christ, is the content. So when someone says, well, you know, I don't believe the Bible, uh, or, I mean, you know, I can't really trust an ancient book, it's been translated so many times, or this is the one I often hear too. It's like the telephone game. You know, uh, somebody, the, the apostles wrote it, and then a group after them copied it, and then a different group after them copied it, and then another group after them copied it, and then so how do you even know what you have today is the same thing that the apostles had. Um, you know, like the old telephone game where you know, I tell Jason something, and he tells Yolanda, and then we go around, and by the time you get all the way over here to Lenore, it's a different message. Uh, the problem with that analogy is that that's not how the Bible was transmitted. The Bible was transmitted to numerous manuscripts. You had massive families of manuscripts that were produced constantly, especially on papyri and uh, vellum and different materials that after a while would fade. And so they had to constantly make more and more and more. Thousands of manuscripts, which makes comparison so much more easy. Uh, put it this way. How do we know that a ruler is 12 inches? Because there's so many rulers you can compare it to, right? Now, there is a ruler somewhere in, uh, in Washington, I believe, in the Department of Weights and Measures, uh, in a vault someplace, that shows what a real inch is. And everything else is compared to that. But does that mean that because we don't have access to that, that you know, we can't really be sure if you've got a legitimate 12 inches? You know, when you have a ruler. Well, no, there's so many rulers in circulation. It's the same thing with the Constitution. It's the same thing with all kinds of things. People just have, they make statements and they haven't really thought through them. And, and, as, we, and as, as we talked about before with the evidence of the, of the resurrection, it's usually not an intellectual issue. It's a moral issue. If I accept these things as true, it means my life has to change. It means Christ becomes Lord rather than me. And I don't want that, so I need something to justify my disbelief. I need something to be my objection so that I don't have to follow Christ and change my standards of living. I want, a, I want a religion a la carte. So there, remember the, those things when you're having a discussion. You may never have a very coherent discussion 
with somebody about these things. Uh, even if they're otherwise very logical and educated, again, it takes the, the Holy Spirit to open the eyes. But some, thing, some things that you can ask is, uh, and again, you want to ask, oh, where my pen went, uh, disappeared. Uh, have you ever read the Bible? Most people haven't. Or they've read little pieces. Now, in my younger, more snotty days, when people would say, yes, I have, I would say things like, and I don't recommend this, but again, 25, 26-year-old Christian, I'd say, oh, really? You've read all 57 books of the Bible. And I can't tell you how many times that worked. Yes, I have. Well, then you would know there's 66, hot shot. You, know, you don't want to say stuff like that, but it's just an example, though, from the amount of times that a silly tactic like that actually showed that the person hadn't read the Bible, that you're dealing with folks who just don't know. And this is a big one, guys. Have you ever considered the message of the Bible? People don't know the message of the Bible. People don't know. When they think of the Bible, they think of a big religious book that says lots of strange things. We need to remember it's a collection of 66 books written by around 40 authors, different authors, with several different genres. Historical narrative, poetry, apocalyptic prophecy, and letters of correspondence. Uh, Just that alone, most people haven't ever considered. It's full of stories, instruction, yet it's really one book with one story. And that story, from beginning to end, is about God redeeming a people for himself through the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you can just get that sentence out. And again, you want to phrase it in a question. Have you ever considered the fact that the Bible is really just one unfolding drama about the person and work of Jesus Christ? The majority of the time, that alone will be news and new information to the person with whom you're speaking. You might find somebody who grew up in the church, maybe even a good church that's rejected the Bible. It's a little more intellectual. And those people exist. But the majority of folks that you're talking to haven't considered this. It's just it's the, the statistics are staggering to prove that now. Even people who profess Christianity don't realize this. They think Jesus is a part of the Bible and not the whole thing. But it follows a plot line, a storyline, something that we hear here each Sunday that many people don't hear. And a person who does not see that misunderstands the purpose and point of biblical revelation. They're, look, they're approaching the Bible as though it were uh, a moral book written by men to help us live better lives. But they're not understanding it as a God revealing himself. To most people, the Bible is a strange and confusing collection of stories, proverbs, genealogies, prophecies that really amounts to little more than one more spiritual book containing some gems of truth that will help you become a better person. It's a manual for living, but so is the Quran, the Upanishads, the Jewish Torah, and William Bennett's Book of Virtues. And so the Bible takes its place among them. Uh, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to be clear about David and Goliath today, because that just becomes nothing more than a fairy tale with a moral lesson for most people. 
when they don't see the, how the way the New Testament interprets the old. Uh, we need to be careful because in our day where everybody wants self-help, people don't realize that Christ is the content of the Bible. And if we can explore a little bit how the Bible shows this very fact, man, that is, that is news to people. That is news. We have to understand that the Bible comes, it, it's, it unfolds in redemptive history with a point and a purpose. We can't just jump in, you know, lucky dipping into the Bible and try to pull something out, which is what a lot of people do. Maybe some of you did that. You know, I, I've heard a lot of people say when they first became Christians, you know, they didn't, didn't know how to read the Bible, which is understandable. And um, I had a friend who said, you know, he used to do lucky dipping where he would just go. And that was his devotion for the day. And, he, you know, basically like the... Um, the magic eight ball, you know, you'd shake and, and hoping to get some gem of truth. And, uh, you know, and I, and I told him one time, I said, isn't that sort of like fast forwarding on your VCR? This is a long time ago. You know, a movie that you haven't ever watched and you're, you're just, I'm going to, this is the scene I'm going to watch right now. And Okay. And then next time, let's rewind it, stop here randomly. And then, guys, that's how most people think of the Bible. This is so important. And I know it's important because I know most of your stories, and like me, most of you didn't know this, that Christ is the actual content of the Bible. And when we're talking about the truth, the veracity, and the reliability of the Bible, we need to start here. It's a a story of progressive revelation, not a book that just sets out timeless principles in abstract like Aesop's fables. The Bible does contain many timeless principles, but never in abstract. They're given in the historical context of biblical revelation. If we allow the Bible to tell its own story, we find a coherent and meaningful whole, and we see a whole picture that presents Christ. So the New Testament, then, tells us how to interpret the Old Testament. Jesus himself gave his contemporaries that big picture. John 5.39. These are some passages that I like to quote. He said to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures, that means Old Testament for them, because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. That's one you want to remember, John 5.39. When you're talking with somebody about how do you know the Bible is true, before we get to manuscripts, we got to start here. What's the Bible about? Have you considered the way Jesus interpreted the Old Testament? Just had a conversation with a guy two weeks ago who said, I believe the New Testament, but Old Testament, I just, I, you know, Jonah and talking donkeys and Samson, and this is a smart guy, college graduate, Samson, you know, come on, the power's in his hair. And I said, I know, I know, it kind of sounds like fairy tales, right? He goes, yeah. I said, listen, and I wouldn't buy any of that stuff either, not for a second. I told him, I'm not somebody who says, it's the Bible, i got to believe it. I said, there's only one reason I believe those things to be true. Because Jesus said they were true. Jesus quoted the Old Testament as it had authority. He had never heard that before. He says, wow, I guess, well, yeah, okay, that changes everything. Because he he believes Jesus, believes the what he reads in the New Testament. He just thinks those Old Testament stories are a little kooky. 
which, come on, they are kooky. They are kooky, right, if we don't have a resurrected Christ. But if we do, and he embraced the Old Testament books, not only as being true, but testifying about himself, that's a game changer. John 5.39. Remember it, guys. If you can't remember that well, write it down in the back of your Bible. John 5.39. And then Luke 24. We heard just that chapter last week. Remember when Jesus was raised from the dead, he was walking along with those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And what did he do there? What did he say? He's beginning with Moses and the prophets. He interpreted in the scriptures all the things pertaining to himself. When, he, when it says Moses, what does he mean there? The Torah. What is the Torah? First five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So Jesus looked at this as though it were true. Jesus saw these things as being authoritative and also about him. And then the prophets, meaning everything from uh, Isaiah to Malachi, uh, he sees these things as being about himself. And see, this puts the ball back in their court about Christ. Well, if you want to accept the Bible, you've got to think, who is this guy, Jesus of Nazareth? Is he the Messiah that the Old Testament proclaims? And should we believe the, the testimony of the eyewitnesses? Again, go look at the evidence yourself. If someone says, well, I don't, I don't accept the Bible as being authoritative, but have you even read the thing that you are rejecting? Have you even examined the evidence of the eyewitnesses? Have you considered this text from antiquity the way you would consider any other text from antiquity? And have you considered the way that Christ is the content from beginning to end? John 5.39, Luke 24, and then passages like Hebrews 1. Hebrews 1 is another one of my favorites. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. So, The Bible, according to the book of Hebrews, is all about God speaking, and he spoke in many ways in times before Christ, but climactically with the coming of Jesus Christ, who is really the climax of all God's revelation. In other words, you know, it's possible to know Bible stories and yet miss the Bible story. As Ed Clowney, one of my former professors, said in his excellent little book uh, about... uh, the Bible being about Christ, he said, only God's revelation can build a story where the end is anticipated from the beginning and where the guiding principle is not chance or fate, but promise. Human authors may build fiction around a plot they have devised, but only God can shape history to a real and ultimate purpose. So this is the first thing I I will bring up. Have you ever considered the content of the Bible? And I, I can almost guarantee you 99% 99% of the time, this is going to be news to people. It's so huge. This is really where their money's at. The next one is not that important, but I put it up here. And this is what we think is more important, but it's not. Archaeological evidence. You know, and this just, again, well, give me some proof. 
is what we say. Well, okay, there's proof from archaeology that the Bible is factual. Is factual. But I want to start with the fact that how do you explain that the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, 66 books, 40 different authors, proclaims one thing? How, how do you, what is your... What is your explanation for that, is what I would say to the objector. Now, archaeological evidence, you know, there's so much. How do we remember uh, archaeological evidence? Uh, what I like to do is give you a little side acrostic. What, are, what do archaeologists do? So good. I dig. So let's remember three. Actually, if you can just remember one, it's pretty good. But try to remember three. Um, Christ is the content. And then, well, have you ever considered any the archaeological evidence? Um, yes, such as what? And you want to say, well, you have to understand that the Bible claims to document historical events. Again, I just can't emphasize enough how, how new that is going to be for most people with whom you speak. They've never read Luke and Acts, for example, which is a two-volume story by one guy who was a physician who, what, if you've read Luke and Acts, what stands out to you the most there? Yes, that's right. He, all through Luke and Acts, he's constantly saying, Oh, yeah, and Felix was the governor. Oh, yeah, and then Herod, and this was in this time, and, and this was the emperor at the time. And he's constantly locating dates, times, and places. It's, it's so piled up, and he, he's writing in a time when most of, these peop- most of the people who are witnesses or, or around those events were still alive. So you, you have a document that is historical and that is dealing with real people in real places, And so archaeology, uh, with the rise of that as a discipline in the 19th century, has repeatedly and consistently confirmed the historical claims of the Bible, not contradicted them. There are many cases of people, names of rulers, landmarks, even civilizations in the Bible that were once criticized as being an error or fictional, but are now considered fact because of the archaeological evidence. And so a big one is the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, what's important about the Dead Sea Scrolls? We always hear about the Dead Sea Scrolls. What's important about that? Anybody know? Yes, Ed. They match with all the other manuscripts. Yeah, and what does that mean exactly? Because you always hear, oh, Dead Sea Scrolls. What does that mean? They match the other manuscripts. Because you're right. But if I'm an unbeliever, what does that mean? Exactly. That's what they do. So, so the Masoretic text, if you have a study Bible, you'll sometimes see those letters MT appear in your margin. Uh, that is saying that, well, in the Masoretic text, the Masoretes were these Jewish scribes who very carefully recorded, you know, book after book after book. They'll say, well, here's a particular variant reading that is uh, in, the man- in the Masoretic text one way and others another way. 
the, the Masoretic text uh, only went back to about uh, 900 years or so after Christ. So when you have a book like Isaiah that so clearly speaks about the crucifixion of Jesus 700 years before Jesus comes, what do you think the skeptics said? Yeah, you know, well, people like Dan Brown would write a novel saying, that's the, you know, the power of Rome put, inserted those things into the Bible, and everybody's duped now. And nobody's here to tell us really what happened, because we don't even have a manuscript. Remember, manuscript just means the script written by hand, okay, that dates back before the time of Christ. They all come after the time of Christ. So they must have inserted Isaiah 53. That was the argument for so long. This is the whole point of the Dead Sea Scrolls, guys. The whole point. This is why we get excited about Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls, are, it's, they're found in all of these caves in what was the Qumran community in the Dead Sea. And it was a shepherd boy who, uh, I think he was throwing rocks trying to get his, one of his sheep out of a cave, uh, hits a, a, a big jar and goes back and finds these jars full of scrolls, takes it into town, people start coming, word gets out, places swarming with archaeologists. They are digging all over and they discover all of these manuscripts and they have whole manuscripts of Isaiah that carbon testing and everything else shows that these things predate the first century. And guess what? They match perfectly. They match perfectly. The Masoretic text showed a lot about the Masoretes. Those are some scribes. You know, so much for the telephone game. Because the telephone game isn't like that, you know. A telephone game, if you're, if you're going to do the telephone game the, 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 the scribal way, you would have one person saying, this is what it is, and everybody else writing it down, a whole room writing it down. And saying it slowly, writing it up on the board, everybody copies. Everybody got it? Okay, now let's move to the next sentence. Everybody got it? Check, 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 check. Okay, perfect, 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 perfect. The scribes would throw out a whole sheet if they got one error in it. They are so diligent. The telephone game is just a silly, juvenile argument against the Bible. It's just, it's, it's a failure, it's a refusal to even look at the evidence. And the Jews, in particular, the Masoretes and the scribes and uh, even rabbis today, just they take that as a huge insult on their culture. The Dead Sea Scrolls show, I just go to Isaiah 53. I say, who do you think this is talking about? Question. I read it. Well, yeah, but how do you know that that was about Jesus? Well, have you ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Well, you know, nowadays it's great, because you don't even have to finish an argument. You say, just Google it. Just go Google it when you get home and uh, see for yourself. Dead Sea Scrolls is a big one. Um, you can, i got tons of information here about it, but uh, we need to move on. Um, the, the I and the G are just two more that I like to, uh, I like to point out. The Italian team, Italians are always got to make an appearance, Right? The Italian team, 1961, that discovered the Pilate Stone. I think I mentioned this in a recent sermon, that Pilate, for a long time, 
This is in 1961. His, uh, his veracity as a true historical person was questioned by scholars for a long time because there was uh, little evidence that he existed uh, uh, outside of Scripture. How do we know he existed if only the Bible talks about him? Um, well, we've got to keep in mind that he wasn't that important of a person. Uh, you know, it was like being, you know, mayor of San Diego. Um, well, that's important to us, yeah, but in 2,000 years, you think anybody's going to remember his name? He's going to remember the name of the governor of California in 2,000 years? You can't, we can't, I can't even remember half the presidents. And that is so important, right? When they're the president, everybody knows who the president is. Well, wait till 100 years goes by, just 100 years. You don't remember who was the who was the who was the who was the twenty third president? I know somebody's going to get it. See, we don't know. We don't know. We don't know. Okay, we know the first and the sixteenth, and that's because we had holidays when we were kids that celebrated them. We don't know the rest. We don't remember. Okay, but so Pilate, he is the governor for Rome of Caesarea or of uh, Palestine, and uh, not, not a very important individual. I mean, he's important as far as it goes, I mean, as a post of Rome, but he's not the emperor, for crying out loud. And so there's not a lot written about the guy. Well, in 1961, a team of Italian archaeologists were excavating an ancient theater at Caesarea, a city built by Herod the Great around 25 B.C., on the Mediterranean coast of Israel. And they found a stone with the inscription of the names Tiberius, the emperor, and Pontius Pilate. Since then, the historicity of Pontius Pilate ha- has not been questioned. It was when you find something like that, you know, they would often, the ancients would often etch things into the sides of buildings. If there was a gift, a presentation. That's considered very credible evidence. I've never really had to pull that out, uh, but it's just if you want, if you have an, a discussion with somebody and you don't want to just Google things in front of them, um, you, you can try to remember that. Another one is something from Acts, the Galileo inscription, also called the Delphi inscription. According to Acts 18, verse 12, a man named Galileo was proconsul of Achaia. In 1905, a letter from the emperor Claudius to Galileo was discovered by a doctoral student in Paris who was sorting through a collection of inscriptions. This letter, known as the Galileo or Delphian inscription, was later dated around AD 52 and fixed the date of Galileo's proconsulship at AD 51 to AD 52. Thus, the events of Acts 18, verses 12 through 17, took place somewhere in that span. With that time frame, scholars can then work backwards. Because Paul's encounter with Galileo happened a year or so into his second missionary journey. The Jerusalem Council mentioned in Acts 15 that preceded the second missionary journey probably took place around AD 48. The Jerusalem Council was preceded by Paul's visit to Jerusalem for the purpose of famine relief, Acts 11. First century historian Josephus dates the famine around 45 or 46, which puts Paul's visit between AD 45 and 47. Galatians chapter 2, Paul says that after 14 years, he went up to Jerusalem again, most likely a reference to his conversion. And that puts Paul's conversion around 32 to 35, very early. Well, this is important to passages such as 1 Corinthians 15, in which Paul says that most 
of more than 500 brothers to whom Christ appeared in his glorified body were still alive at that time. Point is, is that it helps us, these extra-biblical archaeological finds help us date the uh, events of the Bible, and they also verify that these are uh, legitimate uh, historical events, times, places that were recorded by Luke in his Gospel and in Acts. So, Dead Sea Scrolls, Italian team that found the Pilate Stone, Galileo inscription. Again, it's just a few. There's so many. You want to build, you could build a long acrostic if you wanted to, uh, to uh, include the Pool of Siloam, the Pool of Bethesda, uh, the Caiaphas uh, box used to uh, hold the bones of Caiaphas that was found outside Jerusalem in 1990, uh, the Sergius Paulus inscription. Uh, I mean, there are so many things that archaeology has discovered that uh, it lends credibility. In addition to archaeological finds, there are a number of writings from non-Christian sources that have survived and corroborate the events of the New Testament. Too many to document, but just a couple here in closing. One by Josephus, so the most credible uh, Jewish historian of the first century. He's employed by the Romans. He has nothing to gain by corroborating the events of the New Testament. In his work, Antiquities, which is very well respected in the academy, he names Jesus of Nazareth, whom people considered to be the Christ. He also, also James, Jesus' brother, John the Baptist, Herod the Great, and many other people and events documented in the New Testament. This is a Jewish historian employed by the Romans. Because these are real people. These aren't fairy tales. Um, got a great quote here by him. I won't, it's very long, I won't read it, but it's interesting because he was Jewish. Uh, again, he's a hostile witness, and that always has more credibility. Also, Tacitus and Pliny the Younger, they have great passages. Uh, one of Tacitus mentioning Jesus and Christianity in a passage recording Nero's burning of Rome. And Pliny the Younger, a governor of Bithynia in Asia Minor from 109 to 111, wrote to Emperor Trajan explaining, among other things, how he handled the Christians. Uh, Lucian, a second century Greek satirist, also spoke about Christians' worship, uh, how Christ was crucified in Palestine because he introduced this new cult into the world. And he said, the poor wretches have convinced themselves, first and foremost, that they are going to be immortal and live for all time, in consequence of which they despise death and even willingly give themselves into custody. Uh, because they believe these things of this guy, Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, these, this is popular knowledge at the time in the first and second century. And so for us to just arrogantly in the 21st century say, well, it's just a bunch of fairy tales, is to refuse to examine the evidence. So this is where I begin. I'll just tell you what the other two are, and we'll go into them next week. The third is fulfilled prophecy. How do you explain the Old Testament prophesying about things that would happen in the new. And again, this is where the Dead Sea Scrolls can help you. Because you have manuscripts that predate the first century. And then E, which is very important, is extant manuscripts, MSS. This is, this is very important. How many 
manuscripts are there, in other words, copies, of some ancient document that we consider to be credible. And how big is the gap between the time when Homer, for example, wrote the Iliad to the earliest copy that we have of the Iliad? And then what is the gap and how many manuscripts are there uh, of the time when the apostles wrote the New Testament and the earliest manuscripts that are in existence? There is no book, no book, this is just a fact, from the ancient world that even comes close with the number of manuscripts and the shortest gap than the New Testament. It takes more faith to believe that Homer wrote the Iliad or anything, you pick anything from history, anything, Plato, anything from the ancient world, than that the apostles actually wrote the manuscripts, wrote the New Testament, and that, the, and that the, what we have from those manuscripts is the same thing as the original autographs of the apostles. So uh, we'll stop there. I'll go into these two things next week a little bit more. But uh, hopefully you have this framework in your mind to think about a few things that, that help us consider why we can trust that the Bible is credible and worth believing. It's not just uh, a collection of fairy tales and myths. So I'll, I'll stop there and pray, and then if you have any questions, um, we'll, you, I'll stick around for a few minutes. So let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word, which you tell us is breathed out by your spirit, and that you caused men of your choosing to be carried along by your spirit to deliver. And we thank you, Father, that your word is active and powerful, and that it is sharper than any two-edged sword, and that it is a light to our path and a lamp to our feet. And above all, that it reveals the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Thank you for your word, Lord. Please build our appetite for it, our love for it. May our hearts be filled with it. May our minds be renewed by it. And may it be on our lips and in our lives, we pray, as your very revelation that is authoritative over our very lives. For this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.